welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without very clear instructions about who you are and how we're to live for you and how we're to be saved from our sins. We thank you so much that you've given us this word, and we just pray, Lord, even as this week it's been raining and and as the water's been going down deep into the ground, we pray, Lord, that you would give our hearts, make them good soil, make them good soil for your word, that that the water of your word would soak deeply into them, that we would rejoice in the things that you have for us here, that we desire to do them, and Lord, we pray that you would empower us also to live them out by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, really excited to be here. We're, uh, we're in First Peter, and we're in a series called Keep Going. And this morning, we're going to be looking at some area of life that people often need a lot of help to keep going, and that area is marriage. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at marriage. Um, that's just where we happen to be in First Peter. And I was talking to my wife about it. She's got uh, several books that I think you guys would enjoy in the, the book library there. And so we've got this uh, gospel-centered marriage book, super good, really short, if you look for a short book. Uh, when Sinners Say I Do, super helpful on forgiveness and, and imparting grace to each other. Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler, was a great book on Song of Solomon. Um, a Love That Lasts, uh, another excellent book on marriage. Love this book by Tim Keller, of course, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, super helpful. If you need a book that you're going to give to people that are more secular-minded, this would be a great, he starts there and works right into Ephesians 5 in a really beautiful way. But uh, here we are in 1 Peter, and we're chapter 3, and we're starting with this verse 1, that says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I am well aware of how that sounds to modern ears. I have modern ears. And so it sounds a certain way to me as well. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And we have a natural tendency, don't we guys, when we find something in the Bible that is unexpected or offensive, our first move is to try and figure out how to explain it away. And the scriptures tell us that people, teachers that will do that will be very popular in the last days. Ones that will be able to take a passage and go, oh no, it says that, and you go, oh don't worry, it means something totally different, right? We're not going to do that this morning, guys, because... You know, a God that tells you everything you kind of expected to hear and everything you wanted to hear is not a God that can save you. In fact, you know what that God is? Imaginary. And that God's imaginary because that God fits perfectly with your brain. That God fits perfectly with your brain, your expectations, your likes, your desires. You know where it came from? Your brain. Okay, that's an imaginary God. Imaginary God can't help you. Imaginary God can't save you. The true God, the one that really exists, it turns out, and I think you guys will all agree with me, surprises you often, rebukes you, yes, calls you out, corrects you, and demands you change. If you're hearing that, you're probably hearing from God, because that's the way he is, because, you know, he's God, okay? And what he says turns out to always be better than what we wanted him to say anyway, have you found that to be true? You read something like, oh, it says that, and, you know, and, then, and then later you go like, wow, once you've studied it and you looked in and you've been like, I'm so glad God said that. I love what God said. And that's what he's going to do for us this morning. Um, and one of the things we do when we see a passage like this, wives, be subject to your husbands, and we think, well, you know, maybe this is just a cultural artifact. Is this something God really wants us to practice today? Maybe this is something from a long time ago. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment to show you that this doesn't arise out of culture, it arises out of creation. 
So we're going to go back to Genesis because it turns out that this wives being subject to their husbands is something that God has ordained from creation. It's something that, to the way that God has actually designed marriage to work from the beginning. And we need help in marriage, don't we? I mean, really, seriously, if we think of us as a whole, we don't have such great stats that we're like, we got this. You know, we don't really need your help. I know you design marriage, but, you know, our civilization does great without you on marriage. No, our stats are bad. And so we want help. And so it makes sense to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and go, like, what did God design marriage to be? What what is it supposed to be? Um, And we can see how we're actually to live in it. And what's fun about what God did here is when he wanted to teach us about how marriage works, he did it in this real artsy way. He told us a story. He tells us a true story of the very first marriage, and he uses that as a way of teaching us what marriage is supposed to be like. Because he just could have gone line, do this, do that, do that, but instead he tells us a story. He tells us how marriage worked before sin entered the world. He, He shows us how sin has complicated it, and he shows us how this very good gift that he's given us can be cultivated and protected. And guys, I'm consistently amazed when I read Genesis 1 through 3 of its explanatory power. You know what I mean? Like you read it and the more you study it, the more you go like, that's exactly how it works. Or that's exactly how it doesn't work when, when I'm being sinful. I mean, it, it's explained so much and I could spend hours and I won't, but let's look at Genesis 1 because we're going to go back to the beginning. Actually, we're going to go back to before the beginning. Okay? There was a before the beginning. Before God made people and animals and planets and, and even space and time and matter, there was God, a perfect being without beginning or end, eternally existing as three persons, as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in relationship with each other from eternity past. They've always been together. And people often go, well, what did God do before he made the, the world and made humans? Wasn't he bored? Wasn't he lonely? Which is kind of like, you know, saying like, you're better company than the Trinity, right? But God himself is three persons with relationship with each other from eternity past. One God, though, so unified. It's one, he's one being, three persons. Dallas Willard, the philosophy professor at USC, was once asked, what was God doing before he created humans and created the world? And he said this, he was enjoying themselves. He was enjoying themselves, which is terrible grammar, but really good theology, right? So out of the overflow of this relationship of the persons of the Trinity, this overflow of love and joy, God decides to create other persons to enjoy him. He wants to let them in and enjoy him. So after he creates this gigantic universe, oversized for sure, um, he creates this gigantic, beautiful universe. It says in Genesis 1.26, God said this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, um, both men and women being created in God's image, equal in dignity and value and worth. And he, and he makes human beings in his image. And to help you understand that, what, what ancient emperors and stuff would sometimes do is throughout their land, they put little statues of themselves everywhere. So everywhere you went, you could know this place is being ruled by this you know, emperor, and this is what he looks like. And what God did, instead of putting statues all over, which he forbids, putting statues of himself, is he put his image on human beings, scatters them all over the earth. And our role as human beings are to mirror his goodness and glory, his love. And um, we're to be like little mirrors on a 45-degree angle as God's glory shines down on us and out to each other and out to all of the created realm. We're, we're told that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you've been created to do, to be his image bearers to the world. 
And God very intimately made the first man. Look at Genesis 2-7. Then it says, Then God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man was made a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. Very intimate, right? He stoops down, he grabs some dirt, he forms in the man, and then he <sighs> breathes his spirit in, and then, bink, living creature. Did you know you're a creature? Living creature of God's spirit in him, of making him alive. And then before he makes Eve, before he makes his wife, he gives this man two responsibilities, which we see in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You can surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat it you will surely die. There's two words there. He says that the man was to work it and to keep it. And those words are different, actually. One word, work it, has the sense of cultivating it. It's his gardening work. It's his ordinary, everyday work of cultivating it. Not just cultivating the land, but cultivating his family and cultivating all that God has given him. Work is not a result of sin. It was before sin. It's a good thing. It's something we glorify God in. And then to keep it. And you might think, oh, well, keeping it's just like working it. But no, that word keep is more guarded, protected. So here he's to cultivate the garden, and he's also to protect it. That word's often used as a military guard. And so he's to protect the garden by keeping God's one good, generous command. Did you notice what the Lord said? He said, you can eat of any of these trees, just not that one. Okay, this is generous. It's not like God said, you can't eat any of these trees, but you can only eat the gluten-free one, right? No, he didn't do that, right? All the trees, just not this one, right? Good and generous command, and that's how Adam was to keep the serpent out of the garden, was by keeping God's one good command. He was put in charge of his family to cultivate it and to protect it according to God's word. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. This is interesting. So those two Hebrew words, to work and keep, are the exact two verbs used in the book of Numbers for priests in the tabernacle. The priests in the tabernacle were told to use both those things, work and keep it. They're the same Hebrew words. And so what you have here is you have Adam is actually the priest of this garden temple. That's what's really happening here, is this garden, Eden, is like a garden temple, and Adam has been placed as the priest of this temple to both cultivate it and to guard it. Adam is both a gardener and a guardian. Husbands, you have been given a garden temple, your family, to cultivate and protect. You've been given that role. I think in our culture, a lot of times we say, well, you know, I'll take 50% of that responsibility. You take the other half. Or maybe you take 70, I'll take 30, you know. Give me more time for TV. But um, no, husbands, you have been called to be this person that cultivates it, that causes your family to flourish. And also, you're called, guys, to keep the serpent out. You're called to keep the serpent out of your garden. Those are unique responsibilities given to the husband. So after creating Adam, um, God says for the first time that something is not good. He said everything was good, now he says something's not good. And the not good thing is in verse 18. The Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. It's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper. And helper isn't demeaning to say a wife is a helper. Who is most often called the helper in the Old Testament? The Lord is the helper, right? The Lord is my helper, right? That's the most common usage of that word. A helper is, by definition, somebody who has abilities you don't have, and you need their help, okay? There's nothing demeaning about that. Guys, husbands need help. Amen? Do husbands need help? Do they? Husbands need help. Yes, they do. Tasha and I met in high school when we were 15, 
And um, I was a bit animal crazy at that point, and I kind of started with fish and worked my way up to reptiles. And at the time I met her, I had dozens of species of reptiles. If you guys have seen a series of unfortunate events in Monty, you know, that's what my room looked like. But I actually had two bedrooms because I had a large collection, and I had to put some of my reptiles in one and some in the other. Dozens of them, right? Dozens of unclean things. And then... <laughs> So what happens when you own a bunch of snakes is you need to feed them lots of rats. And what most people that really get into this do is they start a rat colony, right? Because you want to raise your own. Rats are easy to breed. Why buy them when you can ranch them, right? And so I don't remember how I found this out, but after I started my rat colony, I found out there's a thing called show quality rats. Okay, there's rat shows. Okay, like best of show, but with rats, okay? And so um, I found this lady, Roseanne the Rat Lady, and she lived in San Diego, and I got like super high quality, show quality rats, okay? So I start breeding those, and so the thing is, the good ones you sell back to Roseanne the Rat Lady at a nice profit, the bad ones you feed to the snakes, okay? So that's what I'm doing when I meet her, right? And I remember the first time Tosh came over, she was 15, she comes over to her house to hang out and look around, and I give her a tour of the operation, right? All the reptiles and the rat ranching operation in the house. I mean, I'm ranching rats in my room. And um, that should have been the end of it. <laughs> right? That should have been the end of it. But you know what's so cool about women and it's so cool about her is that she looked at that and she went, I can work with this. <laughs> right? Women are like that. They, they look at a guy and they're like, I can work with this. Which gets you guys into trouble. But it's a wonderful thing for us because we need help. Right? We need help. And so, um, lost my place here rats. So, uh, so we need helpers, okay? And notice, guys, the first purpose that God gives for marriage here in verse 18. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Notice that the first pur purpose that God has for marriage here, it's not procreation, as the church has tragically taught that that's the main purpose of marriage. It is not for procreation. The first purpose is not for social standing or financial security like the ancients would have taught. Um, it is not for your self-fulfillment and that they will help you realize your dreams, as is taught now. Okay, what is the first purpose of marriage here? Friendship. Isn't that neat? Friendship. God made Adam a friend, and if you're a married person, God made you a friend. Friendship, guys, is core to marriage. You know, before we talk about roles in marriage and all that, you need to see marriage as a lifelong covenant of friendship, right? You need to aim to be each other's best friend. Um, I'm a horse vet, and one of my clients is a family law attorney, and one time I was talking to her, and I said, hey, I do a lot of pre-marriage. Is there any advice you'd give? And I thought she'd say, like, run, you know, or something like that. If she didn't, she's not jaded like that. She said, you know, one thing that all bad marriages have in common is that there was a day that they stopped treating each other as friends. There was a day they started treating each other in ways they would never treat a friend. Isn't that true? Isn't that a good test of your marriage? You're treating each other in ways you would never treat a friend. If that's you, turn back, okay, and be the best possible friend you can be to your spouse. That would be the place to start because that's how marriage started. And so Adam doesn't know yet, right, that he's lonely. Only God knows. And then in verse 19 and 20, he shows them all the animals. And he's showing them this to show like, hey, look, these are paired up. These are paired up. Look at you, you know, kind of a thing, right? So he shows them all the animals. He's naming all the animals. And then God puts him under anesthesia in verse 21. And it says, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed the place up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Um, I love what the early church father, uh, John Christosom, said about this passage. It's fourth century. Think about fourth century people, what they would think. This is what he thought. He says, let us remember that God did not make the woman out of the man's feet. 
to be trampled upon him and enslaved, nor from his head that she should dominate him, but from his side to be his companion, from beneath his arm to receive his protection, and from near his heart to have his love and affection. And his name means golden mouth, by the way. Chrysostom means golden mouth. Now you know why, right? Um, but Adam sees his bride for the first time. Look at verse 23. If you look at your Bible, it's formatted differently than the rest because this is either a song or a poem. Wakes up from anesthesia with a song or poem. This guy's good, right? It's before the fall. Look at verse 23. Then the Lord said, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Rejoicing in his wife. And then we see God kind of steps in to narrate. And he says in verse 23, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. You see the therefore there? That therefore is saying that somehow this narrative is meant to be instructive for all marriages, right? He says, tells this whole story, and he says, therefore, a man, all men, leave their father and mother, right? And guys, he shows us here that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. You see that there, right? One flesh. They became one flesh. Um, the the um, sexual union is a symbol of that, but what's deeper there is this one flesh union. There is an exclusive, intimate, permanent union between a man and a woman in marriage. In marriage, we say, I belong to you permanently, I belong to you exclusively, I belong to you completely, I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen your flaws, and no matter what, I'm not going anywhere. That's what it means to make a covenant, right? It's a pretty sweet deal, right? I mean, you look at marriage, and you're like, this is good. This is why in Proverbs, it says, the man finds a wife, he finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. This is a good thing. This is an amazing gift. If you're married, that is the gift that you're called to cultivate and protect, right? To cultivate and protect. But sin's complicated it, right? Sin enters when that first husband fails to keep the garden. He fails to keep the serpent out. And we see that in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's how we know it's not just a snake, this is Satan. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. So the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and so she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Um, over the centuries, you hear over and over again that this is Eve's fault. This is a very common thing throughout the centuries. Um, men saying it, obviously. Um, but one thing is clear is that God places the blame on Adam for his failure to lead. We see that in Romans 5, and we also see that right here in Genesis 3, because in verse 9, when they're hiding, the Lord calls out who? To who? To the man saying, where are you? Okay? It's singular. And we see who it's to because of how he responds. Guys, Adam failed to lead and protect his family. It's worse than that. He actually stood silently while his wife talked to the serpent and sinned against God's generous law. Because it says in verse 6, she gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. So I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's like playing Candy Crush or what he's doing, but he's like right there, distracted, not protecting, not guarding, 
and then falls along with the sin. And not only that, but then he tries to blame her when God comes, right? Do you remember what the penalty was for eating the fruit? Death. So what he's saying, God comes, he goes, where are you? What have you done? And he goes, kill her. Real brave, right? Real way to take responsibility, right? He blames her for it. He's not taking his responsibility. He blames her. Guys, husbands, God will hold you uniquely responsible for the leadership of your family. He will. And and this is a good reminder for me because I go, oh, yeah, that's right. God will hold us uniquely responsible for the leadership of our family. God's given you a wife. He's given you a garden temple, your home, for you to work and to keep it, to cultivate and protect it. You've been called to keep the serpent out of your garden. That's something you've been called to do. And in the end, when God assesses how you've done, he will not accept the answer, the woman you gave me, okay? Like, practice not saying that, okay? Whatever you say, don't say that. Um, there was a recent scandal, a uh, California congressman, he was caught with uh, using campaign funds for things like private trips, even they paid to fly their family pet rabbit, um, and all this with campaign funds. It turns out it costs hundreds of dollars to fly a rabbit. But um, anyway, he was, he was um, paying uh, Christian school tuition, and all this stuff, right, out of campaign funds. It was actually the school Tosh and I met at. Um, but when they confronted the congressman about his misuse of funds, you know what he said? My wife handles the finances. The woman you gave me. No. No, bro. No. Never do that again. God holds husbands uniquely responsible for the leadership in their homes. The biblical term for this is headship, which sounds like kind of a weird word. But headship is how God has put us uniquely responsible for the direction and leadership of our homes. The husband is ahead of his wife and his family, and he's called to work and keep the garden that God's given him. One day God returns, and he will ask husbands, he will say to each one of us, where are you? Okay? So we need to prepare for that day, and we need to prepare for that day by living as a spiritual covering of our families. Right? You, husband, are the spiritual covering for your family. You are the, the priest of your home. And you know what that makes us do? It makes us pray. Right? Remember Job chapter 1? This guy would get up early in the morning, he would offer sacrifices for his family and pray for them as the priest of the home. Go back and look at Job 1. Super attractive. That's what we're called to do. We're called to pray for our family. We're called to, um, to be that. In your prayers, guys, have, husbands, have special spiritual authority. You know, you have special spiritual authority. God listens to that prayer of protecting your family. Um, it'll make you want to be in the Word, you know. A lot of times, Christian ladies, a lot more in the Word than their husbands. And when we see that this is our responsibility, we're going to be in the Word more. We're going to want to be sharp. We're going to be vigilant, right? You chop off the serpent's head with the sword of the Spirit, right? So that's how you keep him out of the, out of the garden. Um, you're going to want to be the kind of guy that's serious about the church, and which I'm super thankful for here, guys, is that you guys are super serious about the church. When we first planted the church, we wanted it to be a church that men wanted to come to, and when their wives were sick or whatever, they'd still want to come. And praise God, that's the way it is. I constantly see husbands, fathers, bringing their kids to church without their wives when their wives aren't able to come. And I just think that is a huge evidence of God's grace. Um, we're going to talk more about this at the men's breakfast, which is on the, the 23rd. But, but husbands, that's your calling, right? And we're going to talk about it more next week, too, when we look at verse 7. But now that you see all that background of Genesis, Peter's words to wives make a lot of sense in God's design. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Uh, a wife that does that is simply realizing the huge responsibility that her husband has to lead their family and how responsible he is before God to, to lead the family to follow the Lord. And that, and that wife, because she knows that, is going to want her husband to succeed as a leader, 
right? You've got to put that leadership and remind him of it and put it before him and want him to succeed. And we'll talk more about what that looks like next week. But being subject to your husband, I want to give you a few things it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean allowing yourself to be abused, okay? That's illegal. If you're being physically abused by your husband, please let us know. We're going to help you let the authorities know, you know, the, the police. They are the ministers of justice, right? Romans 13, this is something that needs, is illegal and shouldn't happen, and we're going to help you with that. We're going to help you with the ramifications of that, okay? If you feel trapped, church is going to come uh, beside you and help you to deal with, with all of that. So please let us know. Um, it doesn't mean following him into sin, okay? Um, remember Peter and John when they said to the, uh, the authorities in, in Acts, they said, we must obey God rather than men, right? So there'll be a time when, when a wife will have to say, you know what? I totally respect you, but I'm going to have to obey God rather than you, right? Um, it doesn't mean being silent and passive, right? If you think he's making a mistake, you should let him know. Respectfully let him know. Husbands, you would be very, very wise to listen, Okay? Very, very wise to listen. Because if I know that I am and you are going to stand before God on the final day and answer for your leadership of the home, and you have a wife, especially a wife that is a believer, a spirit-indwelt wise person, you want to get that advice now. You want to change course now if you need to change course, okay? But being subject to your husband does mean affirming his leadership even when you don't agree with his direction, Especially, right? That's the only time it matters, right? Um, so being subject to him would be saying things like this. I know that God will ultimately hold you responsible for our family's direction. Um, this is what I think we should do, but I will trust in what God is going to work out through you. Okay? So that's what you do. You, and you notice what I did. You reminded him <laughs> of the final day, which I think is important. <laughs> notice that this command to be subject to your husband um, is not to husbands. It's to wives. The command is not, husbands, subjugate your wives. That would be a whole different command, wouldn't it? It is not your job to get her to be subject to you, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Um, it's a command of wives to be subject to their husbands. That word, hypotasso, for subject, means to rank yourself under a leader. It's to recognize his leadership and desire to, to follow him and help him do it well. It's something that a wife does voluntarily as an act of worship to God. Okay, And so when you look at other cultures where women have no rights and all that stuff, that is not biblical submission. Biblical submission is a wife voluntarily doing it as an act of worship. And because it's voluntary, it's really cool. Peter gives her and you, ladies, wives, encouragements to do it. He doesn't just say, do it. He gives three encouragements, and I want to run through them real quick. These are three reasons why you should be subject to your husband. First one is, it's powerful. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter here is saying that willingly being subject to your husband is powerful, which is ironic, right? Because you it looks like weakness, but it's powerful. It's actually God's power to change husbands. He says, even if some don't obey the word, he saying, you know, don't worry about that. Follow your husband's leadership, pray for him, remind him of, of the position that he's been placed in, and God will do the change in him. Guys, there's nothing that makes a man want to be better than knowing that his whole family's following him, right? I remember my first uh, leadership blunder. It happened on day two of our marriage. Um, so we got married in San Diego, and then we went to Yosemite. And I was super excited to go to Yosemite. So parents usually pay for the honeymoon, the the husband's parents, you know, the groom's parents usually pay for the honeymoon. And so I was like, oh, I've never been to Yosemite. I want to go to Yosemite. I didn't know what the other options were. So my brother gets married a few years later, and they go to Paris. Not the one right here. The, the real Paris, okay? 
And I was like, we could have gone to Paris? Anyway, we went to Yosemite. <laughs> and I'm super excited. There's like half dumb. We're driving around through the floor. Of the, and then I'm super into photography. We see a bear. And I'm like, bears? This is great. You know, I didn't know there were tons of bears there. So we pull off to see the bear. And I'm like, I got to get a picture of the bear, right? And then, but the bear starts leaving. And so I'm like, let's go follow the bear. So we start following the bear into the woods. And then the bear turned around. And then I was like, oh, no. Like, the Lord's given me a wife. She's so sweet to follow me. And now she's going to die. You know? And that's like day two, right? I was like, oh, no. So that was a real eye-opener. I was like, everything you do matters. Down to, like, the wildlife you decide to chase. Right? There's nothing that makes a man want to be better than knowing his whole family's following. You guys, I've told you this before, but there's some pickup trucks that don't ride smooth until there's a big weight in the bed, right? That weight of responsibility is something that, that men do better with. They need to know. So wives, make sure your husband knows that you're following his leadership and that you're praying that he will lead in a good way that will be rewarded on the final day. Be subject to your husband's, guys. Powerful. Secondly, being subject to your own husband is beautiful. Look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be merely external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious to God. Guys, a wife that gives her husband that kind of respect and affirmation, that's super attractive. You guys have seen it when it's done well. You know that it's super attractive. Um, Peter here, he's a married man. We know that because he had a mother-in-law, um, and that's how you get those. But uh, Peter was a married man, and he knew that most women are naturally interested in things that make them more attractive, right? And so he lists some of them, hair, jewelry, clothing. He's not forbidding these. It's great that you're into that. Totally great. But what he says is go after a beauty that doesn't fade, right? And this beauty is something that doesn't fade. It's beautiful to your husband. Guys, it's so nice to know that my wife really likes having me as the leader of our family. And it makes me want to be better. You know, husbands feel that way? you like, you feel like, I want to be better. Like, this woman's trusting me. She's affirming me. I want to be better. It's beautiful to the world, guys. It, this kind of relationship's beautiful to the world. In a post-Christian world like we live in, our nation's very post-Christian, um, people will be won to Christ by hospitality, by inviting them to the homes. And when they see what redeemed relationship looks like, when they, when they come into your home and they just see how nice it is to be in a home where a husband loves his wife sacrificially and the wife respects her husband, it's a breath of fresh air. It's, it's something that, that is a testimony to the world. Invite them to your home. Have them see that. It, it's so much better than so often happens where, you know, husband and wife, they argue about every little thing. You know, dude tells his story. Like, I tell the bear story, you know, and then my wife's like, well, it didn't really happen like that. She would never do that. But you know how people do that? You're, you're out with a couple, and he's telling his story. He's having a good time. She's like, nope, it was three. Nope, 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 it was a Thursday. And I'm like, what are we in a courtroom? Let him tell his story. You know, this is the way he remembers it. This is the way he's embellished it over the years. It's a better story than it started. Just let him tell the story, right? Um, it's beautiful to God, guys. This is beautiful to God. Ultimately, wives, focus on how beautiful this is to God. Look at verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Guys, your following your husband's leadership is an imperishable beauty. It's a beauty that will shine in the world to come forever. What we do in this world, the, the things that we do for God and following his commands do not save us. Jesus saves us. But the things that we do in this world uh, as in obedience to God do shine forth in the world to come forever. Isn't that amazing? It's an imperishable beauty, right? 
And, and, and it's something that God loves particularly because thirdly, you're following your husband's leadership is ultimately trusting God. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women used to hope in God and used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are his children, her children, sorry, you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I love how Peter goes right to the heart here. Because what's the common temptation, what's the common reason why a wife will not follow her husband's leadership, while she, why she will want to kind of nag him or disrespect him or, or disregard him? And, and the temptation is right here in this text. Do you see what it is? What was Sarah's temptation? What's the temptation mentioned in that very last verse? Fear. You see it? Fear anything that's frightening? It's scary, guys. It's scary to follow someone else's leadership, especially when they're a terrible leader, right? This is a scary calling, right? Um, fear is often the reason why a wife will not want to follow her husband's leadership because she sees the right path and then she sees her husband going this way and she's going to follow him? It's scary, right? Super scary. Husbands, do not be scary to follow, right? Think about it. Like, it's hard to follow another person's lead. Make it as easy as possible for her, right? Put yourself in her place. I mean, I always drive. No one drives me. I drive, Okay. I say I get car sick, but it's really probably a control thief. I mean, a control uh, freak, right? I always drive. It's hard to follow somebody. Make it easy for them to follow you. Abraham, guys, was a super scary husband to follow, okay? He was scary to follow when he wasn't sinning, and he was scary to follow when he was sinning. Remember how God came to him? So they're like 75 years old or something, and are super comfortable, you know, super connected. And he comes home, and he's like, hey, we're leaving, Pack your stuff. God told me. It's like, God told you? Where were you? I was out there and God told me. Where is he? I don't know, but he told me we're going. Well, we're old. And he's like, I know we're old. Well, where are we going? I don't know. He's going to tell us when we get there. It's like, what? You know, like, this is scary, right? Sarah's super rugged to follow this guy. Also, he's scary when he was sinning, right? Going to the land and twice he says, Say you're my sister. And here was the deal. He comes into a land. There's like this foreign ruler that he figures is super bloodthirsty. Probably kill him and take his wife, right? And so he's like, just say you're my sister, right? Twice she ends up, his wife ends up with a, with a foreign leader that could potentially take her as his own wife. First time he gets paid for it, by the way. He's getting camels and all this stuff. There's a word for that. That's not good, right? <laughs> Guys, it is super scary to follow this man. Super. And then later he's like, well, she kind of is my sister. She's my half-sister. It's like, oh, brother, this guy, this guy. Um, but what she was ultimately doing, guys, is she was ultimately trusting the Lord. She was ultimately trusting the Lord. She, she didn't fear what the outcome would be. She trusted the Lord. She kept respecting and following her husband because she was ultimately trusting God, right? And God protected her, right? Protected her all the way to the promised land. And more than anything, guys, God loves to be trusted. That's why he sees this heart as beautiful, this heart that's, that's not anxious, that trusts him, because he loves to be trusted. Do you love to be trusted? God loves to be trusted. And it's that kind of trust for God that allows a wife to not be afraid and follow her husband, even when he's not leading well, especially when he's not leading well. Look at verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. doesn't say you have to do that. just says it happened. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Guys, fearlessness is a quality of a godly woman. You see that in Proverbs 31, 25, where it says, Strength and dignity are clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. I love that. She laughs at the time to come. Do you laugh at the time to come? 
I don't. I don't laugh at the time to come. This is such a beautiful quality, and Peter calls it a quiet spirit. I love that. You look at verse 4. He calls this fearlessness a gentle and quiet spirit. I love that, a quiet spirit, because anxiety is a turbulent spirit, right? Anxiety is turbulence within you. It's a storm within you of fear. And what he's saying here is that, that, that um, he delights when we trust him for the future, and it gives us a quiet spirit. Um, this is totally the way my wife is. She's got a quiet spirit. She She's fearless. She laughs at the time to come. Not always audibly, but she laughs at the time to come. You know, I would go ahead and, you know, I'll say, hey, so aren't you worried about how we'll pay this bill? She's like, no. And I'm like, okay. And then I'll be like, aren't you worried about the latest disease I think I have? (laughs) And she's like, no. She's got a quiet spirit, you know, and people like us need that, right? We need a spouse like that, a quiet spirit. Don't you want that? Don't you want a quiet spirit? A quiet spirit is ultimately a spirit that rests in the sovereignty of God, right? A quiet spirit is a spirit that recognizes that God reigns over every atom and every molecule and every dust particle and every breeze and every biological process. And that Romans 8 tells us that he causes all things to work together for our good. Hobbleberg Catechism in question one says that everything must work together for my good because of what God's promise. Isn't that awesome? And, and, and he did. He caused things to work for her, good, for her good. And God protected Sarah all the way to the promised land. So that no matter what foolish path I lead my family down, or your husband's leading you down, or you husband's lead your families down, um, God is ultimately in control. And the ultimate destination of any of those paths is God's perfect, renovated new world, the true promised land. So you can follow this guy knowing that, like, man, he's not the sharpest. He's not picking the right path, but I'm going I'm to continue to follow him knowing that all these paths, no matter how foolish or wise, ultimately lead to God's perfect, renovated new world, the true promised land. If we believe that, guys, we can laugh at the time to come, can't we? If we really believe that no matter what happens in this life, that we are going to end up in that promised land, in Revelation 21 and 22, the new world, where this world becomes renovated and made new, Jesus reigns on it, we're in our resurrected bodies, enjoying the fellowship of all believers, worshiping and seeing God himself in our midst, in the true garden temple, right, to come, living in the garden temple with God, then we could pretty much laugh at the time to come, right? We could laugh at anything that's coming forward, and there'll be plenty of laughter there. And the reason why we have that to look forward to, guys, is not because we deserve God's care, and not because, you know, we deserve to be welcome there, but because of the leadership of our ultimate husband, Jesus Christ, right? Gen- uh, Ephesians 5 tells us that, that Paul tells us that in, in Genesis 2, when he talked about the two becoming one flesh, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that that's ultimately talking about us in Christ. Isn't that interesting? You take a look at it in Ephesians 5. He says ultimately that he quotes Genesis 2 about the two became become made one, and he says, ultimately, it's talking about us and Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, Jesus, the ultimate husband, has made an everlasting covenant with you. He, he, in the gospel, we hear him say, I belong to you permanently, exclusively. This is what he says to us. I belong to you permanently, exclusively, completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen your flaws, and no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. He's promised not to leave us or forsake us. He's promised to cultivate and protect us. He, he protected us from the serpent, and he protects us from the penalty of our sins by his death on the cross. Because, guys, unlike Adam, Jesus took the blame, right? He didn't have any blame to take for himself. He took ownership of all her blame. He took the blame of all the sins of his bride, and then he died her death. He died your death. 
By his death, he removed sin, and he's, return, he's going to return us to the garden that's been ridden of the serpent. And when you're welcomed home to that garden temple, that new Jerusalem, described in those last two chapters of this book, he's going to welcome us with a meal. You hear that in Revelation. He's going to welcome us with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember that. Because the Lord's Supper has really three purposes. There's looking back on Jesus' death for us. There's the spiritual feeding that he does for us. And thirdly, there's the looking forward to the meal we're going to have with Jesus, the great husband. He says in Luke 22, For I tell you the truth, I will not eat of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide this amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And that's the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And so let him feed you today with his grace. Because what we need more than anything, as we hear the calling that we have, is we need the power to live it. And we get that by the Spirit working through us. And so as you take the bread and as you take the cup, and they come inside of you and they become a part of you, it's a reminder that Christ, through the Spirit, has come within us, to dwell within us, to live out through us, and to help us to love our spouse in that way. Um, If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then what we'd ask you to do is during the the next song, just this first song, come forward, take the bread and the cup, and then hang on to it. We normally take them, you know, as families and stuff. We're all going to take it together. So hang on to it, and then after the first song, I'll come back up, and we'll take it together. Father, we are immensely grateful that you're a God who is eternally existent in three persons, completely sufficient within yourself, You have no needs. You have no needs for our worship. You have no needs for our help. You have no needs for our ministry. You have no needs for our companionship. You do not need us. And yet you desire to share yourself with us, and so you've created us, and you've redeemed us at great cost through the death of your Son. And Lord, we thank you that you delight in us. Even though you don't need us, you delight in us, you enjoy us that you want to draw us near to yourself. And we pray, Lord, this morning that if there's anyone here that is resisting you, that is dragging their feet, that is dug in their heels, that is stubbornly not wanting to come to you to enjoy all that you are, Lord, we pray that you break that down today. Lord, as we see this beautiful picture of who you are, what else do we want? What else are we looking for? What could the world give us that's better than you? Absolutely nothing. I pray for those who are in difficult situations in their marriage, Lord, that you would be their full satisfaction. That they would draw all their joy and peace and hope from you and the future that you have for them so that they can serve. Lord, that it wouldn't be this kind of worldly love that if, if you serve me, I'll serve you, Lord, but that you would work through each one of us to serve others. And we thank you for uh, the act of communion for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for this opportunity to remember your son's wounds. To remember that he was pierced for our transgressions. To remember that his body and blood have made an end of our sin. And we pray, Lord, that as we do that, Lord, we pray that you would feed us, that you would empower us to go out from here, living in the power of the Spirit, to do all the things you've designed us to do. And Lord, also as we take it, we remember you're coming again. You're coming again to take us where you are. And then, Lord, you're going to come here and make this place better than the beginning, better than the garden.
physical, tangible, and yet spiritual because you yourself will be here with us and you will make all things new. Lord, your words are faithful and true and we rejoice in them. We pray, help us to worship you in a way that is a blessing to your very heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.